All right, please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, excuse me, chapter 3. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. Part 3 of what will end up being four parts in this passage of Scripture, chapters 1 through 13, ministers in the local church. We uh, have been considering this passage now for, as we see here, three weeks, continuing to walk slowly through these qualifications, and that, because they are important, we must acknowledge this, that that these qualifications are important, that the officers of the local church are both structural and functional in the church and ought not be uh, considered lightly. We ought not just flippantly uh, ordain though any man who has that desire to be a bishop into that ministry, for indeed, though he desires a good work, yet it is a work that is spiritual in nature. Therefore, it, desi- it, it requires uh, a particular man, a particular type of man. We acknowledge how important the local church is to God's plan and His design within the scope of the age. The second reason why we're taking our time is because as it relates to the character of ministers, we deal with some topics uh, which could either be controversial, such as last week where we spent the majority of our time actually simply walking through the nature and teaching of, of the Word of God on divorce and then going from there into what it might mean or has historically meant that the bishop be the husband of one wife. We can't really understand where we would stand on that without understanding historically what the church has understood as it relates to divorce. Or there may be topics of which the scriptures have quite a bit more to say, and we'll talk about that a little bit in our time together today as it relates to verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. So last time we stopped at verse 2, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 3 together. We will only get through verse 3 today, and then next week we will finish through the remainder of our context. The Bible says in uh, 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 3, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, not give, uh, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. So this is what we read together, or this is what we read together. We, we covered the first two verses over the first two weeks here. And remember, as we talk through all of this, that really everything as it relates to the qualifications of the bishop, who is also a pastor or an elder, everything as it relates to those qualifications really falls under the umbrella of this concept of blamelessness. So the point of this is not that he's a spiritually perfect person. It's not that he has every single duck in a row. It's not that he has uh, no problems within his spiritual life, but that he is of such character, he is of such deportment that he is not going to cast a shadow upon the church, upon the testimony of Jesus Christ, that he is going to be the type of man in deportment, the type of man in maturity, the type of man in spirituality, uh, spirituality, the type of man in capacity as it relates to his capacity to teach, the type of man that is going to reflect properly upon God, upon his word, and upon his church. And this is really the point. And this is why we talked the way we did about divorce last week, uh, that uh, as we 
make sure that that's tipped up enough. I don't want that to fall back there. That uh, as we talked through the nature of him being the husband of one wife and we sought to understand what that was, uh, we boiled it down particularly to this idea that is he going to reflect upon the church the testimony of redemption or is he going to reflect upon the church a testimony of disobedience? Is he blameless? That's what we seek to to find as our standard. Is he blameless? And so this week, we continue in verse 3, and we begin with this phrase, not given to wine. Uh, We begin here with this call that the minister of God should not be given to wine. This word is found only two times in our New Testament, both passages here and in Titus, speaking uh, about the qualification of Ministers In the classical Greek, it is used infrequently as well. But in all cases, it speaks about a man who allows himself to be brought under the influence of alcohol. As we just stated, and as with most of the requirements of, as, of a minister, the call to not be given to wine is one, of course, that extends well beyond ministers. But we see it as a particular necessity among ministers. Let me say that again. Remember, as we talked about last week, Really, with the exception of apt to teach, there has not been one qualification yet of a minister that is not something that is expected of every believer. These ministerial qualifications are not some super pious qualifications. They're not heightened pastoral qualifications. I uh, always find it, I find it almost a little bit disappointing how people view ministers. There is a a level of of honor that comes with the office, as we talked about, uh, but to think or expect the pastor to be some superhuman spiritual guy is, it's a romantic idea, but it's not a realistic idea. And not only is it not realistic as far as imposing some expectation upon the pastor that makes the pastor have to lend himself toward hypocrisy. Because he can't be what his congregation expects him to be, because he's just human. Not only does it lend toward hypocrisy, but it also lends toward pride. And the elevating of the minister beyond that which is his right to be elevated. Both of which can be a real problem in the church. So really, these qualifications are just effectively this. If you're looking for the leader of a company, you're going to look at someone who's done a good job. At, at exemplifying leadership characteristics. He, he's not necessarily some sort of superhuman. He's just a guy that ha, has, he, he's, he's made his mistakes. He's learned his lessons. He understands the job. He does a good job at it. He's going to be a good leader. The man who you're looking for to be a bishop, an, an officer in the church, is not some sort of superhuman man, but someone who has taken the word of God, who has assimilated it into his life and who lives it out in a consistent and mature manner. Who is a good example to God's people. And so when we see this command not given to wine, as I said, this is not something that's just for ministers. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writing to the church. He says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The explicit command here, as we see it in the Scripture, is to not 
be drunk with wine. But by virtue of the linguistic contrast that this command presents, we see here that the point is be filled with the Spirit, right? That Paul, as he commands the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he commands the church to be filled with the Spirit. And the reason why this contrasts so strongly with be not drunk with wine is because as we see it implied here by implication, by the way it's written, these two are mutually exclusive. You cannot both be under the influence of alcohol and be under the influence of the Spirit of God. It does not work that way. This is the the natural method of interpretation lending us to this conviction that you cannot simultaneously be drunk and be filled with the Spirit, be intoxicated and be filled with the Spirit. Now, the call upon the lives of every believer is to walk in the Spirit, right? We know that from Galatians chapter 5. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is what we are called to do. Jesus said in John 15, abide in me, right? And he said that as we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. He said, and so shall ye be my disciples. So if we're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, if we're called to follow him, then we're called to abide in him. If we're called to abide in him, we're called to walk in the spirit. If we're called to walk in the spirit, then it would be it would be working entirely against the calling of God upon our lives to allow ourselves to be under the influence of some chemical. And to this end, I say it that way. It's not just, of course, alcohol or specifically wine that would alter the state of our consciousness to the extent to where the Spirit of God has no capacity to lead us, right? We would recognize here that within the spirit of this command, within the natural meaning of this command, we could place any mind-altering substance that overrides the ability of one's mind, that overrides the control of one's actions so that the Spirit of God is not able to be the influencing portion or or the, the main influence in a man's Life. Working with uh, people at the dr- at the jail regularly, of course, probably some eighty to ninety percent of the people I interact with in the jail setting have an addictions problem of some sort, whether it be alcohol or drugs. And what always fascinates me about how they describe themselves, uh, many of whom were under the influence at the time when they ended up being um, found and, and caught and arrested, and they had drugs in their possession and such, but they often talk about the drug controlling them. They say that was the drug, that was the meth, that was the heroin, that was the alcohol. And as they see it from their perspective, it's like they are this person and then when this drug enters their body, that drug controls them. It causes them to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. It directs them to think in a way they wouldn't otherwise think, to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. They speak of the drug almost as a, as a second party in their consciousness. That's oftentimes how they speak of it. Uh, I remember one woman in particular uh, who, who would regularly speak of it that way as if the drug was controlling her. Now, in, in part, that may be a way of them trying to remove from themselves a measure of culpability, right, in what they're doing. But in another sense, there really is an idea here when a person is, puts themselves under the influence of certain 
substances, the chemicals fundamentally change their manner of thinking and their manner of acting and overrides what would be their normal sensibilities, overrides what would be uh, their normal level of discernment, overrides what would be their normal decision-making process. Now, if that is the case, anecdotally at least, how is it then that I can both be led of the Spirit of God and have a mind-altering substance affecting me in such a way. It is incompatible. And as we look at the broad historical precedent for mind-altering substances, Paul says here that where that, that, that contained within drunkenness is excess. The idea here is that, that that idea of excess, literally asotia, the word sotia is salvation. This is not saying that anyone who puts themselves under a mind-altering substance is not saved. That's not what this is saying here. The word salvation does not always speak of being born again in the scriptures. The word salvation speaks of being delivered from oftentimes unrighteousness or even being delivered from an infirmity or an, uh, uh, an ailment, uh, being healed from a sickness, all of those uh, use that word salvation in the scripture. But the idea here, asotia, is wasteful living, reckless abandon. May I, may I use the word carnality? Asotia, carnality. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is carnality, wherein is the world, wherein is the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is the direction that the mind-altering substance inevitably and invariably draws people. To that end, there is a mutual exclusion between being drunk with wine, wherein is excess, and being filled with the Spirit. So then, as we carry this concept over to the qualification of the minister, we would understand them in the same vein. If this is the call unto the believer, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, then for the minister to not be given with wine, again, is natural, right? That he is not going to, if he has to be a blameless man, then he better not be putting himself in the path of excess, carnality. He, if he is to be a blameless man, if he is to lead the people of God, then he dare not position himself in a place where he cannot be filled with the Spirit because he has a mind-altering substance which is inhibiting the capacity of the Spirit of God to lead and direct him. Not only, then, should this man not be susceptible to being overtaken with alcohol or really any mind-altering substance in the spirit of the text there, but he should be a man over whom this chemical, no chemical substance has power so that he is not a man who will be regularly hindered in the ability of the Spirit of God to work in him and through him. Now, we're not going to get into a full exposition of uh, the doctrinal stance that I have my teaching on alcohol today. We recognize in Scripture as we go particularly to the Proverbs the tremendously strong warnings about alcohol in the scriptures, the dangers of alcohol in the scriptures, the tremendous warnings about, as we draw them to their natural end, the danger of allowing chemicals to override 
God-given sensibilities and the near inevitable problems that come with such. But we must also acknowledge that the scriptures are full of instances where wine was consumed by those who, without any hint of contradiction, claim to be walking with and following Christ. And there's argument about this, and, and I've talked with many of you about this, and, and I've gone through those in my preaching on it before. But even in this very book, in 1 Timothy, this very epistle, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake, and thy often infirmities. We don't know exactly what it was that troubled Timothy. When we get to this passage, we'll explore that concept a bit further. But it is sufficient to say that Paul seems to draw a line of distinction here between a man who is given to wine and a man who takes a little wine. We see both of those in the same, it's the same word for wine. It's the same epistle Paul makes no distinction between the two. It would be very difficult for us to be honest with the text and to seek a distinction made here with Paul and Timothy where Paul made none. The former, of course, being a perfectly acceptable circumstance for Timothy's needs medicinally and the latter being disqualifying a man from leadership because we're not talking medicinally here. We're not talking about value. We're talking about asotia. We're talking about excess. We're talking about a man who's either dealing with problems or who is seeking to place himself into the the realm of carnality through his decision-making process. Big, big distinction between those two. So he is not given to wine is the first uh, element here in verse 3. Second, no striker. Not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler. When we see this idea of not being a striker, it is, it is um, correlated here with patient and not a brawler. In the same way, we'll see not greedy of filthy lucre is correlated with not covetous. So the man that aspires unto the office of the bishop, he needs to be a temperate man. A man who maintains a control over his own senses and sensibilities. Temperate not only in his habits and indulgences as it relates to substances, but he needs to be temperate as it relates to his emotions as well. So he needs to be temperate as it relates to his habits and indulgences. He needs to be temperate in his emotions. He's not given to wine, but he needs to be no striker. The word here speaks of a man who is violent or has a fierce nature about him. We see this defined as much by its contrast as we see it defined by its face value. Uh, Do this when you study. When you study, don't just look for, don't define something just by what it is, but but define something, you can define things by what it's not. I've mentioned before, lots of times, that for many people, the most helpful page on our website is the what we are not page. Because it helps people so much simply to know what we don't associate with. For others, that page may scare them away, thinking that we're, not, not, that, that we're just pushing everyone away. That's not the intent of the page. The, the intent of the page is not to push people away. It's to simply define who and what we are, and sometimes that is best defined by who and what we are not. So a man who is not a striker, in contrast, you see that word but, but patience. There are two words that are generally translated but in the Greek. One of them is simply a conjunction. 
It can be but, it can be and, it can be or. It's general. And then there's one that is not general. There's one that is clearly a contrast word. And that's the word we find here. Don't be a striker. Don't be greedy of filthy lucre. But in contrast, be patient, not a brawler, and covetous. Be patient, not a brawler, and covetous. So the man who is not given to wine and is no striker is not just not given to wine and is no strong striker, but in contrast, he is instead patient and not a brawler. Both of these words speak to the fact that the man who is called to be a minister of God is a gentle man, a mild-mannered and peaceable man. He is not a man of conflict, and he is not a man of aggression. And once again, he is called to be this way for two reasons. First, He needs to be blameless. Second, all believers are called to be this way. So we find in Philippians chapter 4, Paul used this same word to the church. Verses 4 and 5, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Within this context, there was an apparent conflict in the church between a couple of women. Yodius and Syntyche were their names. And Paul calls them to be of the same mind. He calls them to let this conflict cease between them. And then he tells the church, help them. Help them get through this conflict. And that's where we find these verses, verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again I say rejoice. And then as it relates to their testimony, he says, your moderation, your gentleness, your mild manner should be known to all. If people associate who, who, who know of the church or associate with the church see these two women in a cat fight, it's not going to be a good testimony. The church is not blameless before the unbeliever. Paul uses so many examples in the scripture of ways in which the church can stain its testimony before the world. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about going to law before unbelievers. Uh, Paul talks about the arguing one of another. Paul talks about faith and the manner of our faith. Paul talks about how we would seek to use carnal ends to solve our problems just like the world around us. Jesus warned against this idea in Matthew chapter 6 that we would not um, take thought for the things of this world that we would not take so much thought for what we will wear and what we will eat and, 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 where, and, and where we will live uh, that we would, would heap up to ourselves treasures upon this earth because after all these things the Gentiles seek. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you, Jesus said. And so the church is supposed to be blameless. Certainly then the man who leads the church needs to be blameless. And so he's to be a man of moderation, mild and appropriate because the church is supposed to be a church of moderation. You ought to be able to look at me. You ought to be able to look at the bishop, elder, pastors of the church and see in him an example of what you ought to be as it relates to your behavior. So the people of the church are to be known. They should be known by their patience by their gentleness, by their moderation. James would say the same thing in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness and wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Notice he calls it a lie against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, 
devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. There's our word here, gentle. That's our word. And easy to be entreated. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. What a tremendous passage of scripture. What a tremendous... We were talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ a little bit in Sunday school this morning. And one of the things that uh, I mentioned when I talked through that, as many of you heard throughout my series that I preached, if you recall, is that we, we don't want to get so caught up in the academics that we lose the spiritual. If our church could just spend... If, 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 if churches, our church included, could just spend about a year working on James 3, 3-18... through 18, if we could set aside the, the dates and, and the, 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 the ins and the outs and, and all of the, the divisions and, the, and, the, and the, 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 little, the little things here and there, and we could just, we could just work on, on James 3, 13 through 18 for a little while. What a difference we would have. What a, what a different life the church would be leading in the eyes of the world that is around them. James magnifies the wisdom that is from above and he contrasts it. He says that where there is envying and strife, there is a wisdom, but it's the earthly wisdom. See, because the earthly wisdom, that's their solution. Envy. Envy and strife. See, where the Spirit of God is, there's unity. And those things, can, they will fall away. Where there is envying and strife, there's sin. And it will work itself out in a wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Not, not what the church is supposed to look like by any way, shape, or form. The wisdom from above, however, it's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's easy to be entreated. This is the call of the believer, Christian. This is for you. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is for you. This is what you're supposed to look like. This is what I am supposed to look like. And I'm supposed to exemplify it as the pastor. Knowing that the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness is sown. So you sow a seed and that seed bears fruit. You want the fruit of righteousness? You're going to plant the seeds of righteousness. Those seeds of righteousness, they are sown in peace of them, by them who make peace. Envy and strife are not going to sow the seeds of righteousness. Church that's bickering and arguing and dividing is not, we are, that church is not going to sow the seeds of righteousness. The seeds of righteousness are sown in peace of them that make peace. And so the minister of God is no striker but patient, not a brawler. Finally, not greedy of filthy lucre, and we contrast that with that second phrase there, not covetous. This is the last concept in verse 3, and once again is presented twice. The minister of God is called to be a man who is not greedy for money, not loving money, not covetous. So important is this call upon the minister that Paul takes time in chapter 6 to directly exhort Timothy in this regard. Now again, I'm stealing a little bit of thunder from chapter 6. But it's going to be a while before we get there anyway. So let's 
read it and think about it for a few moments this morning. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 11. The Bible says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, speaking to Timothy, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Naturally, we'll discuss the nature of this passage more when we arrive at it. But consider the strength and the weight of the words that Paul uses to warn Timothy about the intersection, particularly between money and ministry. Now, we can say the intersection between money and one's spiritual life, and there's certainly a valid understanding there, as, of course, this is a call. The call of, uh, unto the minister is just a call to be a good example to those that are beneath them. But particularly the intersection between money and ministry. In short, it's a recipe for carnality. It's a recipe for stripping all of the power out of one's ministry when money becomes the object. Paul calls the minister unto godly contentment, knowing that we can take nothing out of this world. We brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out. This is all just stuff. It's material. It's here, then it's gone. These chairs, they're here, then they're gone. This pulpit, it's here, it's gone. These computers, they're here and they're gone. It's just stuff. Stuff comes, stuff goes. But if we have the eyes to see with faith, then we'll understand that the things that are eternal matter so much more. And anytime I yield the eternal for the temporal, anytime I yield the spiritual for the carnal, I am... I am acting foolishly because I am yielding that which cannot be lost, that which cannot fade away, for that which moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. God forbid that we should live that way. God forbid that our ministers should live that way. Paul warns against the love of money which he calls the root of all evil. He warns those who will be rich. Now take note of some things here. He doesn't say those who have riches. He says those who will be rich. Those who are pursuing riches. Those who have a life that is consumed with riches. Those who have material ends as their goals not just as their means. As a pastor friend once put it, it's not about whether or not you have money, it's about whether or not money has you. Okay? That's the idea here. It's not money itself that is the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. It is when I place my heart and my intent and my desire upon money. It's when I place my fears and my anxieties upon money. I think that's a bigger one for a lot of us. It may not necessarily be for, for many of us that we are uh, ambitious to just make, 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 but maybe it is that we stay up at night worrying about money. 
Maybe it is that we have major anxieties in our heart about money or about things. Maybe it's not that we are on the fast track to becoming uh, insanely wealthy because we've put everything else on the back burner. But maybe it is that in our own way, we've been consumed with some measure of covetousness, some measure of discontent because of the lack of money. Thinking if only I had that much money, then I could have this thing, then I wouldn't have to worry anymore, then I wouldn't have to be in this circumstance anymore, then this would be taken care of. And we always couch it in virtue, right? Then I could get my kids to college, then I could give this to someone else. It's always couched in virtue, but it's discontent. But godliness with contentment is great gain. The love of money is the root of all evil. Which some having, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. It has diverted them from that which matters. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. And diverted them to that which does not matter. The material and the temporal. This is to be the priority in our, all of our lives. And the minister of God is to exemplify this. A couple of weeks ago in part one of this message, we went a couple of times to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll go there again as we consider this idea. In 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 3, we read this, we'll read it again. The elders which are among you, and remember elder, pastor, bishop, it's the same thing as far as the scriptures define it, so we're still talking about the same office here. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. Here we see, perhaps in a more clear way, the nature of this call as it relates specifically to the minister. Peter calls for the elders, as we discussed them a few weeks ago, to feed the flock of God and to take oversight over the flock of God. But notice the careful constraints of this line of thinking. The minister is not free to demand leadership or loyalty. He is not to lord himself over the flock, demanding obedience, demanding fealty, demanding regard, demanding respect, demanding honor. All of these are outside the bounds of what a pastor has the right to ask or to expect of his people. The minister is free to be the kind of man who leads those who love the Lord would desire to follow. May I say that again? The pastor is free to be the kind of man who leads though, who, who, who is the type of leader who those who love the Lord would desire to follow. That's what he's supposed to be. The carnal idea of leadership is be that strong man, be that charismatic man, be that, that rock from a, a, a physical or a material standpoint. The man that has enough money that the people under him can, be, can feel confident or who is strong and capable and so the people can say, well, he'll work it out. Well, that's not the spiritual realm. That's the carnal realm. In the spiritual realm, the man who leads the flock of God is supposed to be one who the flock can look to and say, that's a man following Christ. 
and I will follow him as he follows Christ. Just as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Peter makes it clear that the man who shepherds the flock should not by any means be motivated or aspire to those things which motivate carnal leaders, particularly in this case, power, honor, or money. Power, fame, honor, money, these things are foreign to the spiritual. Pastors should not operate in a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do fashion where they say one thing and then go do the other. Pastors should be a follow-me-as-I-follow-Christ leader. These characteristics make for good ministers in the local church. And notice how similar these characteristics are to the exhortation in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Not just the greedy for filthy lucre line, but also the no-striker line. Here we see Peter exhort the elders to be men who will not be lords over God's heritage, who don't oversee by constraint. You owe me nothing naturally. I am God's minister unto you. And I want to think about this more deeply today because it is something that needs to be considered with care and with gravity. Peter's call here is that the elders would lead, not by constraint, but willingly, not as those who are lords over God's heritage, but those who are an example to the flock. There are two ideas here that I'd like to consider. The first idea is the nature of ministerial leadership. The minister of God does not function in the leadership role as the carnal man, as we just said. He's not the typical general. He's not the typical dictator type of leader, the strong man leader. We read those first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 5, which calls the pastor not to be a lord over God's heritage, but to be an example to the flock. In verse 4, as this passage continues, Peter writes this, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. See, I'm not the chief shepherd of the flock here. I'm not a chief shepherd. I am not the one who owns the flock. I am not the one who decides what the flock should or should not have. I am the under-shepherd of the flock. I am the shepherd underneath the chief shepherd. The one who the shepherd looks to and says, this is what I want of my flock today. Go give them that. And I go do what the shepherd tells me to do. The under-shepherd does not exist to determine what is best for the flock. The flock is not his flock. The under-shepherd is there to impose the wishes of the chief shepherd upon the flock. The chief shepherd comes to the under-shepherd and he tells him, Today, I want my flock fed, I want my flock watered, and I want my flock protected. And the under-shepherd goes and he takes the flock and he feeds them and he waters them and he protects them. He doesn't say, I think today I want to shear the sheep. Because the chief shepherd didn't tell him to shear the sheep. And if he says, this is my flock and I'm going to shear my sheep today, he has gone outside the realm of the commission that the chief shepherd has given to him. And so the chief shepherd is watching. And the elder, the bishop, the pastor, ought to always lead the flock in a manner that is consistent with him knowing that he's going to answer to the chief shepherd one day. The chief shepherd is the one who has the right to dictate what is best for his flock. Now, there is some flexibility here, if you will. 
And what I mean by that is I receive the commission of the chief shepherd to feed the flock, and it's my responsibility to find those pastures, to know the flock and to know what the flock needs and to minister to the direct needs of the flock that I am the under-shepherd over. It's my responsibility to keep the flock together in absence of the... He's called me to protect the flock. Now I need to decide how that's going to happen, how I'm going to protect the flock, how I'm going to bind the wounds of those who are injured, give direction, leadership. But only as under the mandate that the chief shepherd has given to me. And when I step outside of that mandate and I start to think that this is my flock to do what I will with it and you're going to do what I say and we're going to go where I say we need to go and we're going to do what I say we need to do. We're going to form up this flock in my own image. Then I have missed it. And as James warns, there's coming a day when those who are teachers will be under greater condemnation and I'll be judged. And that needs to matter to me. And it should. And by God's grace, it does. So the minister serves the body in the name of Christ. The second point I want to make is is also uh, very important. And and I found it to be um, a point which is perhaps more difficult for us in this time and in this place to appreciate. We need to consider the realities of ministers' leadership, not just of how they lead, but of the fact that they do have authority. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about the fact that God has designed the church to be organized, that God has designed the church to be led. The very existence of these offices in the Word of God reflect the reality that the church is designed to be led that these bishops, elders, deacon, or the, the bishop, elder, pastor is called pastor, shepherd the flock, as the, the under shepherd, under the chief shepherd. The elders are not to lead by constraint. They are not to seek to be lords over God's heritage, but they have been given authority to lead the body. And we need to understand this. We've spoken before about what's often called the three legged stool of society. Civil government, family, the institution of family, and then the institution of the church. And we've spoken about how, as God has designed it, each one has been given a measure of limited authority under God with a degree of overlap. And I've given you this uh, picture before. It's perhaps not uh, the the best or the most perfect uh, idea of this, and yet it, it serves its purpose. That God has given government the right to protect, protect and to preserve life, to avenge evil. This is why government can put someone to death and you can't. Because the government has been given the God-ordained right of putting to death the evildoer. And you can't just go rogue and say, I'm going to go put to death people that I believe are evildoers because that is not your right, but it is the government's right. And see, Christians are confused about this today. They say, if I'm pro-life, then how can I be pro-capital punishment? Because we're talking about two entirely different realms of authority. The government has been given authority to punish the evildoer. Given that authority. No one has been given the authority to take a human life, an innocent human life. They're entirely 
different realms of authority. So we need to understand the concept of the realms of authority. And this is not very difficult necessarily for Christians to understand as it relates to government. We have a lot of teaching in the Bible about submitting to government and whatnot and the role of government. And and while we might be in disagreement about some of the nitty-gritty of that, uh, we acknowledge it's there. And then particularly in our circle, this church, which uh, does not separate parents from their children, we do so under the philosophy that fathers, it's your family. You're teaching your family, and I'm here to teach you how to teach your family. I'm here to teach you so that you can then filter the information that I'm giving you down to your family in a way that is best for your children, because I don't know your children as well as you know your children, and I don't know your children's needs like you know your children's needs. So I give you the doctrine, and then you take that doctrine throughout the week, and you filter it down to your children in a manner that they need and in a manner that is digestible to them. And this is a design. So we regard the importance of family. We, we regard the authority of family. Once again, this is something, uh, this, is, this is why we believe what we believe uh, about the nature of schooling today and, and, and why many of us homeschool because we have seen the government seek not just to educate children but to strip from parents authority over their children. And at the point where, where the government institution, which does not have the right to your children, that is not their, their realm of authority, seeks to claim authority over your children that they do not have, it is incumbent upon us to guard that authority and to guard our children, right? And so that, that, that's generally speaking the philosophy by which we operate in these rules because we recognize authority. But you know where we really struggle with this in many of our, our, our lives and circles is that third circle, we, we get this idea, we've got the authority of, of the, the, the government, and then I've got my authority over my family, and that authority over my family has a spiritual component to it, but then a pastor comes into the mix, or a church particularly comes into a mix, and there's, start, there's this other exercise of authority whereby the church legitimately has a claim of authority upon you, and you say, wait a minute. I'll just go down to the church down the street when I get upset at your claim of authority over me. How about I just, how about I just walk away? See, you can't really walk away from government all that easily. It used to be that way, but not so much anymore. You know, technology's making it to where they can tra- track you down pretty well. And you can't walk away from family all that easily, especially the children. But it's really easy in our age just to walk away from the church. Really easy. And you know what? It's really easy... It's, it's made so much easier by the internet because I can still get all the teaching I want. I can still get all of the exposition I want and not connect myself to the authority of a local body, the accountability of a local body, the fellowship of a local body. And it's important. The final realm of authority that God has given is to the church. Authority to protect and to proclaim the truth. Authority to edify and to lead the saints. Jesus speaks in Matthew 18 of the authority to rebuke and to remove transgressors from fellowship. James chapter 5 speaks of the authority of the elders of the church to intercede before God on behalf of those who are sick. And we have considered already in 1 Peter 5 the call for the church to place themselves willingly under the authority of the elders of the church as it relates to the spiritual function that function that God has called them to accomplish. And here is where we have this dramatic breakdown in the Western church, particularly since 
really the time of the Reformation. See, before that, the church was pretty unified under the, the Roman Catholic Church. We say church loosely there. But there was a unified idea of authority as it related to spiritual authority. And that was the church. You talk to Catholics today, they still talk about the church, right? They don't talk about the Bible, they talk about the church. And the Reformation brought us to this idea, the, the five solas, right? And one of those solas being sola scriptura, right? The scriptures alone, that the scriptures are our sole authority for faith and practice. And indeed, that is absolutely the case. You look on our website, you will find we believe that the word of God is the sole authority for our faith and for our practice. But when we think of these top-down church models, the Catholic Church, the Episcopalian Church, uh, they have a tremendous respect for the church, the teachings, the traditions, the exhortations, and we've seen how that has been deeply abused. And that perhaps causes us to have our fingertips singed, or maybe more than that singed, and we say, because of the natural capacity for the church to abuse any authority it's given, I'm not going to place myself under its authority. I am going to deny its authority because that authority has been historically abused. And so I say the Bible is my only authority. The Holy Spirit is my only teacher. And it doesn't matter about the church body. It doesn't matter about the church the gathering. It doesn't matter about the assembly. As long as I have my Bible and the Spirit, I have everything I need. And you'd be wrong. And you'd be wrong. That is not the case. God has given the church authority. And we need to understand that there is an authority and accountability that God has designed to be lived out by the assembly and the assembly led by bishops and deacons. Now, we've been made resistant to this model because of its abuses. We've been made resistant to this model, not just by the abuses that we would see in the Catholic Church or the Episcopalian Church, but by the abuses that we'd see even in circles like our own with the dictator-pastor model where a guy gets to the top and he just starts telling people what to do and everyone's doing it and, and then things go bad and people get hurt and it's true and it happens. We regard the Bible to have authority over us. We want God's ministers to tell us what the Bible has to say, but there's a general unwillingness to appreciate the fact that God has given to those who are recognized ministers spiritual authority over the body of Christ and that the body of Christ has authority over one another. If God has given the pastor teacher to the church and God has ordained there to be leaders in the church and the church has been given authority by God, then we must recognize that there is some measure of authority that God has intended to be integrated into the church structure. So that when a church ordains a man to ministry or calls a man into their ministry, whether they ordain him or whether they call him as one who is already ordained, they're not just asking him to teach them, they are willingly inviting him to exercise authority over them. By stating their willingness to, by, by, by bringing him in, they are stating their willingness to submit to a measure of his authority. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not as lords over God's heritage, but as an example to the flock. You see that line there? You're not asking me to become your dictator and to tell you everything of what to do, but you're asking me to come in and to lead you. And you're saying we're willingly placing ourselves under that, follow me as I follow Christ, type idea. 
And it's for this reason that the whole process of ordination, the calling of ministers, even church membership itself is so important. And at this point, I'm going to turn from the theoretical to the personal. I was ordained seven years ago here at Legacy Baptist Church. The men of the church laid hands on me, they prayed over me, and I was ordained into this ministry. I was called to be pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, asked by the body to be the leader of this body. We have a process called membership, which is an official way to have yourself added to this body. We don't see membership directly in the scriptures, but things have changed a lot since the early church. And the public nature of churches mean that in order to protect the church, you have to perhaps have another layer to distinguish between those who truly want to connect themselves to the accountability of the church and those who are just going to come, sit in the seats, listen, and leave. And so we have this thing called membership. And those who join, join the work, become a part of what we do, place yourself under the authority, not just of of the leader, but of the church, the accountability of the church. You bind yourself to this church. You say you're going to work with and for this church to bring the gospel to the lost, to edify one another, to build one another up in love. That means we, we, we exhort one another. That means we call each other out when we're walking in sin. That means we seek to be held accountable and to hold one another accountable because we love each other. That means we fellowship together. That means we associate one with another in a meaningful and close way. Now, if the body did not want me to lead, it should not have ordained me or called me. And if the body is going to ordain me or call me, then it should be willing to place itself under my leadership as long as I'm walking toward Christ. But take note. There's a big difference between a body saying or somebody saying, we don't want to follow the leadership or submit to the authority of that man and saying, we don't want to follow the leadership or to submit the, the authority of any man. The first is totally appropriate. If you all decided that I was not the right guy for this job, you would have the right to say, Pastor, we're going to go find someone new to lead this body. Thank you for your time. We're sending you on your way. And that would be 100% reasonable and appropriate for you. But for you to say, and we've decided we're not going to put, any, put ourselves under any willing leadership, any authority, that's a problem. Because God has ordained the church to be led. The second is outside of God's design. As we see the church, God doesn't give us a whole lot of information on the structure of the church, but he's given us two offices. And he's told us how they're supposed to function. That's what we do have. And we need to be careful that we're not ignoring or rejecting what we have been given. Likewise, if any individual deems me to be a man under whom you do not want to submit or follow, under whom you cannot follow me as I follow Christ type idea, then you don't become a member of this church. And that's perfectly reasonable. You go find the church where the Lord has called you, where you can place yourself willingly under the authority of that man, and you follow him as he follows Christ. And you, you willingly submit to that church body. And that's fine, and that's right, and that's normal, and that's good. But take note, there's a big difference between you saying, I don't want to be under that pastor, and you saying, I won't place myself under any spiritual authority. I won't place myself under any church authority. There's a big difference between those two. One of them is perfectly reasonable. The other one is outside the realm of God's design. 
and we need to understand that. So what many have tried to do today is they've tried to pull, just as the government has tried to pull family authority into it, the family has often tried to pull church authority into it. Now, it used to be that it was the government tried to pull church authority in as well, right? But we've got this wonderful thing called the First Amendment, which has protected us from that and then been you know, grossly misinterpreted, but, but has protected us from the government using its power to impose religious dogma on us. Thank God for that. But the danger has not been averted altogether because now in this age, the family has been pulling religious authority, spiritual authority, church authority into itself and saying, we are the end all. I am my own authority as it relates to God. And while we need to be careful with the top-down church authority, such as is exemplified in the Catholic Church and the Episcopalian Church, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say we just reject the church altogether because there's some really bad historical examples of how church authority has been used and abused. God help us that we might be balanced and see how both these things can be true at once how there can be a true place for church authority, pastoral authority, and that we ought to willingly submit ourselves to that as unto Christ, while simultaneously recognizing the, and protecting ourselves against the danger of its abuses. To strip oneself from this concept of, of corporate church authority reminds me very much of Korah in number 16. And I think this is one of the clearest examples of this idea. God had told the nation of Israel that they would be a kingdom of priests. God had told them that they would each stand before him in their own way. And so Korah decided that because they were a kingdom of priests, that Moses and Aaron had no right to claim any sort of leadership or authority over the congregation. And so they go and they stand toe-to-toe with Moses and Aaron and they say, how dare you take this power for yourself? How dare you try to claim your, your authority over the congregation that is to be a kingdom of priests before God? And it was indeed true that God had ordained them to be that kingdom of priests, that they were to have their own relationship with God. But this does not mean that God did not ordain leaders over them. And so, of course, God tells them, I'll settle this. Have them all meet, and we'll just take care of this. Moses, you stand there, you have your rod. Aaron's there. The sons of Korah will stand before you with their censers. And they stood before Moses on that day, and Moses says, God will affirm who ought to lead this nation. And the sons of Korah, the earth opened up, swallowed them whole, the others that were there, the fire of God came down and destroyed them all, their families, everything. And it became very clear that God had ordained leadership. And that for Korah to stand up and say, because we can have a personal relationship with God, we are therefore rejecting corporate congregational leadership was abhorrent to God, was rebellion in the eyes of God. Now, I'm not here trying to tell you that to reject my leadership or this church's uh, authority or anything of that is to defy God in, in that same way. But that spirit may be in your heart. And that's the warning. The warning is not that the earth is going to swallow you up. The warning is not you better toe the line or else. 
But it is a question of what is in your heart. Is the same rebellion of Korah, of which all things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, is that rebellion of Korah in number 16, is it in your heart as it relates to the assembly? It's becoming so much more common in this day and in this age for this to be the spirit of the believer. And it's a dangerous spirit. It's a spirit of rebellion, which we already are predisposed to in America because we're kind of a rebellious people. And we're predisposed to this rebellion. And if that rebellion is there to where you reject the authority of the church, of, of the church assembly, of the local church assembly wholesale, I would encourage you to reevaluate your thinking on this issue. If you choose me as your pastor and then reject my authority, you are denying a God-given authority. You don't have to choose me as your pastor. You submit willingly. You follow me as I follow Christ. But if you say, Pastor, I'm, I'm there, and then you reject my authority, just as you would be rejecting a God-given authority by, reject, by, by disobeying your boss, servants, be subject unto your masters in all things, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. You, re, you, you, you obey your employee, or employer, excuse me, you obey your employer in the Lord, for this is right. You obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You submit to a government in the Lord, for this is right. The church has been ordained by God. And if you place yourself under, within its fellowship, under its authority, then you need to submit to that authority. And if the church cannot submit to the authority of the elder or elders, then they need to remove those elders and find men under whom they can submit. And if you as an individual cannot submit to the authority of the body which you have chosen, then you should find a body under whom you can submit. But what is not your right is to simply reject the authority of the church and its leaders. Because the church has been ordained by God. The church has been given a call to have ordained leaders. And these leaders have been given authority in the body of Christ. And the people of God have been called to submit themselves to the leadership of those offices. So just as we said in part one of this message, this man is not worthy of honor. This man is not entitled to authority. But the minister... The office has been given authority. The elder that rules well is worthy of double honor, according to the scriptures. The office has authority. The office has the right to honor. And this is why the qualifications of ministers is so important. Because if the church is going to submit, and it should, and if we're going to submit to the church, and we should, then you'd better be careful who you put in this position. And so once again, and to that end, we find a renewed call to care who it is that leads the church and a renewed call to understand the qualifications that are to be realized. And the question becomes, how are you doing today? Now, as it relates to these things, we talked through a couple of issues. Of course, we talked through not giving to wine. We talked through the, 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 that meekness and that gentleness that is supposed to be characterized. But really, the, the focal point of this is to talk about the nature of church authority. And I think this is something of which we all need to prayerfully consider in our hearts uh, as it relates to the church 
and to the pastor. We all have uh, perhaps a little bit of a different idea of where that authority goes and how that is exercised, but we, as we mentioned already, we've seen, we see the examples of the body discerning, of the body coming together, of the body uh, um, exhorting, of the body disciplining, of the body restoring, of the body working together unto a spiritual end. Only within the realm of authority that it's been given, not to encroach into the family, not to encroach into the government, the realm that it has been given. By God's grace, how are you doing? Have you recognized and are you willing to submit to a spiritual authority? Do you see the importance of this, the legitimacy of the authority in the church in the same manner as the legitimacy of the authority of the family and of the government, civil government? Do you need to place yourself under that authority and that accountability, whether here at Legacy Baptist Church or the authority of some other body under some other under-shepherd? It's my hope and prayer that these concepts will stretch us today, will grow us today, will help us become the kind of church God wants us to be and become members in particular, not in the membership way, church membership, but members of the body in particular so that we may be effective for the Lord, not just among one another, but in the broader community in which and for which we serve. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.